Chapter thirty four of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter thirty four. In which the travellers move homeward and encounter some distinguished characters upon the way. Among the passengers on board the steamboat, there was a faint gentleman sitting on a low camp-stool, with his legs on a high barrel of flour, as if he were looking at the prospect with his ankles, who attracted their attention speedily. He had straight black hair, parted up the middle of his head, and hanging down upon his coat, a little fringe of hair upon his chin, wore no neckcloth, a white hat, a suit of black, long in the sleeves and short in the legs, soiled brown stockings and laced shoes. His complexion, naturally muddy, was rendered muddier by too strict an economy of soap and water. And the same observation will apply to the washable part of his attire, which he might have changed with comfort to himself and gratification to his friends. He was about five-and-thirty, was crushed and jammed up in a heap under the shade of a large green cotton umbrella, and ruminated over his tobacco plug like a cow. He was not singular, to be sure, in these respects, for every gentleman on board appeared to have had a difference with his laundress, and to have left off washing himself in early youth. Every gentleman, too, was perfectly stopped up with tight plugging, and was dislocated in the greater part of his joints. But about this gentleman there was a peculiar air of sagacity and wisdom, which convinced Martin that he was no common character, and this turned out to be the case. "'How do you do, sir?' said a voice in Martin's ear. "'How do you do, sir?' said Martin. It was a tall, thin gentleman who spoke to him, with a carpet cap on, and a long, loose coat of green baize, ornamented about the pockets with black velvet. "'You air from Europe, sir?' "'I am,' said Martin. "'You air fortunate, sir.' Martin thought so, too, but he soon discovered that the gentleman and he attached different meanings to this remark. "'You air fortunate, sir, in having an opportunity of beholding our Elijah Pogram, sir.' "'Your Elijah Pogram,' said Martin, thinking it was all one word in a building of some sort. "'Yes, sir.' Martin tried to look as if he understood him, but he couldn't make it out. "'Yes, sir,' repeated the gentleman. "'Our Elijah Pogram, sir, is at this minute identically settin' by the engine-biler.' The gentleman under the umbrella put his right forefinger to his eyebrow, as if he were revolving schemes of state. "'That is Elijah Pogram, is it?' said Martin. "'Yes, sir,' replied the other. "'That is Elijah Pogram.' "'Dear me,' said Martin, "'I am astonished.' But he had not the least idea who this Elijah Pogram was, having never heard the name in all his life. "'If the biler of this vessel was to bust, sir,' said his new acquaintance, "'and to bust now, this would be a festival day in the calendar of despotism. "'Pretty nigh equal in, sir, in its effects upon the human race, our fourth of glorious July. "'Yes, sir, that is the Honourable Elijah Pogram, member of Congress, "'one of the masterminds of our country, sir. "'There is a brow, sir, there.' "'Quite remarkable,' said Martin. "'Yes, sir.' 
"'Our own immortal Chiggle, sir, is said to have observed, "'when he made the celebrated pogram statter in marble, "'which rose so much contest and prejudice in Europe "'that the brow was more than mortal. "'This was before the pogram defiance, "'and was, therefore, a prediction, cruel, smart.' "'What is the pogrom defiance?' asked Martin, thinking perhaps it was the sign of a public-house. "'An oration, sir,' returned his friend. "'Oh, to be sure,' cried Martin, "'what am I thinking of? It defied—' "'It defied the world, sir,' said the other gravely. "'Defied the world in general, to compete with our country upon any hook, "'and developed our internal resources for making war upon the universal earth. "'You would like to know, Elijah Pogram, sir?' "'If you please,' said Martin. "'Mr. Pogram,' said the stranger, "'Mr. Pogram having overheard every word of the dialogue, "'This is a gentleman from Europe, sir, from England, sir, "'but generous enemies may meet upon the neutral style of private life, I think.' "'The languid Mr. Pogram shook hands with Martin, "'like a clockwork figure that was just running down, "'but he made amends by chewing like one that was just wound up. "'Mr. Pogram,' said the introducer, "'is a public servant, sir. "'When Congress is recessed, "'he makes himself acquainted with those free United States "'of which he is the gifted son.' "'It occurred to Martin that if the Honourable Elijah Pogram "'had stayed at home and sent his shoes upon a tour, "'they would have answered the same purpose, "'for they were the only part of him in a situation to see anything. "'In course of time, however, Mr. Pogram rose, and having ejected certain plugging consequences which would have impeded his articulation, took up a position where there was something to lean against, and began to talk to Martin, shading himself with a green umbrella all the time. As he began with the words, "'How do you like?' Martin took him up and said, "'The country, I presume?' "'Yes, sir,' said Elijah Pogram. A knot of passengers gathered round to hear what followed." and Martin heard his friend say, as he whispered to another friend, and rubbed his hands, "'Pogram will smash him into sky-blue fits, I know.' "'Why,' said Martin, after a moment's hesitation, "'I have learned by experience that you take an unfair advantage of a stranger when you ask that question. You don't mean it to be answered except in one way. Now I don't choose to answer it in that way, for I cannot honestly answer it in that way, and therefore I would rather not answer it at all.' But Mr. Pogram was going to make a great speech in the next session about foreign relations, and was going to write strong articles on the subject. And as he greatly favoured the free and independent custom, a very harmless and agreeable one, of procuring information of any sort in any kind of confidence, and afterwards perverting it publicly in any manner that happened to suit him, he had determined to get at Martin's opinion somehow or other. For if he could have got nothing out of him, he would have had to invent it for him, and that would have been laborious. He made a mental note of his answer, and went in again. "'You are from Eden, sir. How did you like Eden?' Martin said what he thought of that part of the country, in pretty strong terms. "'It is strange,' said Pogram, looking round upon the group, "'this hatred of our country and her institutions. This national antipathy is deeply rooted in the British mind.' "'Good heaven, sir!' cried Martin. "'Is the Eden Land Corporation, with Mr. Scatter at its head, "'and all the misery it has worked at its door, "'an institution of America, a part of any form of government "'that ever was known or heard of?' "'I consider the cause of this to be,' said Pogram, "'looking round again and taking himself up where Martin had interrupted him, 
partly jealousy and prejudice, and partly the natural unfitness of the British people to appreciate the exalted institutions of our native land. I expect, sir, turning to Martin again, that a gentleman named Chollop happened in upon you during your location in the town of Eden. Yes, answered Martin, but my friend can answer this better than I can, for I was very ill at the time. Mark, the gentleman is speaking of Mr. Chollop. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, I see him, observed Mark. A splendid example of our native raw material, sir, said Pogram, interrogatively. Indeed, sir, cried Mark. The Honorable Elijah Pogram glanced at his friends as though he would have said, Observe this, see what follows, and they rendered tribute to the Pogram genius by a gentle murmur. "'Our fellow-countryman is a model of a man, quite fresh from nature's mould. said Pogram, with enthusiasm. "'He is a true-born child of this free hemisphere, verdant as the mountains of our country, bright and flowing as our mineral licks, unspiled by withering conventionalities, as e'er our broad and boundless perirers. Rough he may be, so e'er our bars. Wild he may be, so e'er our bufflers.' but he is a child of nature and a child of freedom, and his boastful answer to the despot and the tyrant is that his bright home is in the setting sun. Part of this referred to Chollop, and part to a western postmaster who, being a public defaulter not very long before, a character not at all uncommon in America, had been removed from office, and on whose behalf Mr. Pogram, he voted for Pogram, had thundered the last sentence from his seat in Congress at the head of an unpopular president. It told brilliantly, for the bystanders were delighted, and one of them said to Martin that he guessed he had now seen something of the eloquential aspect of our country and was chawed up pretty small. Mr. Pogram waited until his hearers were calm again before he said to Mark, "'You do not seem to coincide, sir.' "'Why,' said Mark, I didn't like him much, and that's the truth, sir. I thought he was a bully, and I didn't admire his carrying them murderous little persuaders and being so ready to use em. It's singular, said Pogram, lifting his umbrella high enough to look all round from under it. It's strange. You observe the settled opposition to our institutions which pervades the British mind. What an extraordinary people you are, cried Martin. Are Mr. Chollop and the class he represents an institution here? Are pistols with revolving barrels, sword-sticks, bowie-knives, and such things institutions on which you pride yourselves? Are bloody duels, brutal combats, savage assaults, shooting down and stabbing in the streets your institutions? Why, I shall hear next that dishonor and fraud are among the institutions of the great republic." The moment the words passed his lips, the Honorable Elijah Pogram looked round again. "'This morbid hatred of our institutions,' he observed, "'is quite a study for the psychological observer. "'He's alluding to repudiation now.' "'Oh, you may make anything an institution if you like,' said Martin, laughing, "'and I confess you had me there, for you certainly have made that one.' "'but the greater part of these things are one institution with us, "'and we call it by the generic name of Old Bailey. "'The bell being rung for dinner at this moment, "'everybody ran away into the cabin, "'whither the Honourable Elijah Pogram fled with such precipitation "'that he forgot his umbrella was up, "'and fixed it so tightly in the cabin door 
that it could neither be let down nor got out. For a minute or so this accident created a perfect rebellion among the hungry passengers behind, who, seeing the dishes and hearing the knives and forks at work, well knew what would happen unless they got there instantly and were nearly mad, while several virtuous citizens at the table were in deadly peril of choking themselves in their unnatural efforts to get rid of all the meat before these others came. They carried the umbrella by storm, however, and rushed in at the breach. The Honourable Elijah Pogram and Martin found themselves, after a severe struggle, side by side, as they might have come together in the pit of a London theatre, and for four whole minutes afterwards Pogram was snapping up great blocks of everything he could get hold of like a raven. When he had taken this unusually protracted dinner, he began to talk to Martin, and begged him not to have the least delicacy in speaking with perfect freedom to him, for he was a calm philosopher, which Martin was extremely glad to hear, for he had begun to speculate on Elijah being a disciple of that other school of Republican philosophy, whose noble sentiments are carved with knives upon a pupil's body, and written not with pen and ink, but tar and feathers. "'What do you think of my countrymen who are present, sir?' inquired Elijah Pogram. "'Oh, very pleasant,' said Martin. "'They were a very pleasant party. "'No man had spoken a word. "'Every one had been intent, as usual, on his own private gorging, "'and the greater part of the company were decidedly dirty feeders. "'The Honourable Elijah Pogram looked at Martin as if he thought, "'You don't mean that, I know,' and he was soon confirmed in this opinion. "'Sitting opposite to them was a gentleman in a high state of tobacco,' who wore quite a little beard, composed of the overflowing of that weed, as they had dried about his mouth and chin, so common an ornament that it would scarcely have attracted Martin's observation, but that this good citizen, burning to assert his equality against all comers, sucked his knife for some moments, and made a cut with it at the butter, just as Martin was in the act of taking some. There was a juiciness about the deed that might have sickened a scavenger. When Elijah Pogram, to whom this was an everyday incident, saw that Martin put the plate away and took no butter, he was quite delighted, and said, "'Well, the morbid hatred of you British to the institutions of our country is astonishing!' "'Upon my life!' cried Martin, in his turn. "'This is the most wonderful community that ever existed. A man deliberately makes a hog of himself, and that's an institution.' "'We have no time to acquire forms, sir,' said Elijah Pogram. "'Acquire!' cried Martin. "'But it's not a question of acquiring anything. "'It's a question of losing the natural politeness of a savage, "'and that instinctive good breeding which admonishes one man "'not to offend and disgust another. "'Don't you think that man over the way, for instance, "'naturally knows better, "'but considers it a very fine and independent thing "'to be a brute in small matters?' "'He is a native of our country, and is naturally bright and spry, of course,' said Mr. Pogram. "'Now observe what this comes to, Mr. Pogram,' pursued Martin. "'The mass of your countrymen begin by stubbornly neglecting little social observances "'which have nothing to do with gentility, custom, usage, government, or country, "'but are acts of common, decent, natural human politeness. "'You abet them in this by resenting all attacks upon their social offences "'as if they were a beautiful national feature. "'From disregarding small obligations, "'they come in regular course to disregard great ones, "'and so refuse to pay their debts. 
What they may do, or what they may refuse to do next, I don't know, but any man may see, if he will, that it will be something following in natural succession, and a part of one great growth which is rotten at the root. The mind of Mr. Pogram was too philosophical to see this, so they went on deck again, where, resuming his former post, he chewed until he was in a lethargic state amounting to insensibility. After a weary voyage of several days, they came again to that same wharf where Mark had been so nearly left behind on the night of starting for Eden. Captain Kedgick, the landlord, was standing there, and was greatly surprised to see them coming from the boat. "'Why, what the tarnal!' cried the captain. "'Well, I do admire it this, I do. "'We can stay at your house until tomorrow, Captain, I suppose,' said Martin. "'I reckon you can stay there for a twelve-month, if you like,' retorted Kedgick coolly. "'But our people won't best like your coming back.' "'Won't like it, Captain Kedgick,' said Martin. "'They did expect you was a-going to settle,' Kedgick answered, as he shook his head. "'They've been took in, you can't deny.' "'What do you mean?' cried Martin. "'You didn't ought to have received him,' said the captain. "'No, you didn't.' "'My good friend,' returned Martin, "'did I want to receive them? "'Was it any act of mine? "'Didn't you tell me they would rile up "'and that I should be flayed like a wild cat "'and threaten all kinds of vengeance "'if I didn't receive them?' "'I don't know about that,' returned the captain. "'But when our people's frills is out, "'they're starched up pretty stiff, I tell you.' With that, he fell into the rear to walk with Mark, while Martin and Elijah Pogram went on to the National. "'We've come back alive, you see,' said Mark. "'It ain't the thing I did expect,' the captain grumbled. "'A man ain't got no right to be a public man unless he meets the public views. Our fashionable people wouldn't have attended his levy if they had known it.' Nothing mollified the captain, who persisted in taking it very ill that they had not both died in Eden." The boarders at the National felt strongly on the subject, too, but it happened by good fortune that they had not much time to think about this grievance, for it was suddenly determined to pounce upon the Honourable Elijah Pogram and give him a levy forthwith. As the general evening meal of the house was over before the arrival of the boat, Martin, Mark, and Pogram were taking tea and fixings at the public table by themselves when the deputation entered to announce this honour consisting of six gentlemen boarders and a very shrill boy. "'Sir,' said the spokesman. "'Mr. Pogram!' cried the shrill boy. The spokesman, thus reminded of the shrill boy's presence, introduced him. "'Dr. Ginnery Dunkel, sir, a gentleman of great poetical elements. He has recently joined us here, sir, and is an acquisition to us, sir, I do assure you. "'Yes, sir. Mr. Jod, sir. Mr. Izzard, sir. Mr. Julius Bibb, sir.' "'Julius Washington Merriweather Bibb,' said the gentleman himself, to himself. "'I beg your pardon, sir. Excuse me. Mr. Julius Washington Merriweather Bibb, sir. "'A gentleman in the lumber line, sir, and much esteemed. "'Colonel Groper, sir. Professor Piper, sir. My own name, sir, is Oscar Buffum.' Each man took one slide forward as he was named, butted at the Honourable Elijah Pogram with his head, shook hands, and slid back again. The introductions being completed, the spokesman resumed. "'Sir!' "'Mr. Pogram!' cried the shrill boy. "'Perhaps,' said the spokesman, with a hopeless look, "'you will be so good, Dr. Ginnery Dunkel, as to charge yourself with the execution of our little office, sir.' 
As there was nothing the shrill boy desired more, he immediately stepped forward. On the whole, it was considered to have been the severest mental exercise ever heard in the National Hotel. Tears stood in the shrill boy's eyes several times, and the whole company observed that their heads ached with the effort, as well they might. When it at last became necessary to release Elijah Pogram from the corner, and the committee saw him safely back again to the next room, they were fervent in their admiration. "'Which,' said Mr. Buffum, "'must have vent, or it will bust.' "'To you, Mr. Pogram, I am grateful. "'Towards you, sir, I am inspired with lofty veneration and with deep emotion. "'The sentiment to which I would propose to give expression, sir, is this. "'May you ever be as firm, sir, as your marble statter. "'May it ever be as great a terror to its enemies as you.' "'There is some reason to suppose that it was rather terrible to its friends.' being a statue of the elevated or goblin school, in which the Honourable Elijah Pogram was represented as in a very high wind, with his hair all standing on end, and his nostrils blown wide open. But Mr. Pogram thanked his friend and countryman for the aspiration to which he had given utterance, and the committee, after another solemn shaking of hands, retired to bed, except the doctor, who immediately repaired to the newspaper office, and there wrote a short poem suggested by the events of the evening, beginning with fourteen stars, and headed, A Fragment, suggested by witnessing the Honourable Elijah Pogram engaged in a philosophical disputation with three of Columbia's fairest daughters, by Dr. Ginnery Dunkel of Troy. If Pogram was as glad to get to bed as Martin was, he must have been well rewarded for his labours. They started off again next day, Martin and Mark previously disposing of their goods to the storekeepers of whom they had purchased them for anything they would bring, and were fellow travellers to within a short distance of New York. When Pogram was about to leave them, he grew thoughtful, and after pondering for some time, took Martin aside. "'We are going to part, sir,' said Pogram. "'Pray don't distress yourself,' said Martin. "'We must bear it.' "'It ain't that, sir,' returned Pogram. "'Not at all.' "'but I should wish you to accept a copy of my oration.' "'Thank you,' said Martin. "'You are very good. I shall be most happy.' "'It ain't quite that, sir, neither,' resumed Pogram. "'Are you bold enough to introduce a copy into your country?' "'Certainly,' said Martin. "'Why not?' "'Its sentiments are strong, sir,' hinted Pogram darkly. "'That makes no difference,' said Martin. "'I'll take a dozen, if you like.' "'No, sir,' retorted Pogram. "'Not a dozen. That is more than I require. "'If you are content to run the hazard, sir, "'here is one for your Lord Chancellor,' producing it, "'and one for your Principal Secretary of State. "'I should wish them to see it, sir, "'as expressing what my opinions are, "'that they may not plead ignorance at a future time. "'But don't get into danger, sir, on my account.' "'There is not the least danger, I assure you,' said Martin. So he put the pamphlets in his pocket, and they parted. Mr. Bevan had written in his letter that at a certain time, which fell out happily just then, he would be at a certain hotel in the city, anxiously expecting to see them. To this place they repaired without a moment's delay. They had the satisfaction of finding him within, and of being received by their good friend with his own warmth and heartiness. "'I am truly sorry and ashamed,' said Martin, "'to have begged of you, 
but look at us, see what we are, and judge to what we are reduced. So far from claiming to have done you any service, returned the other, I reproach myself with having been, unwittingly, the original cause of your misfortunes. I no more supposed you would go to Eden on such representations as you received, or indeed that you would do anything but be dispossessed by the readiest means of your idea that fortunes were so easily made here, than I thought of going to Eden myself. The fact is I closed with the thing in a mad and sanguine manner, said Martin, and the less said about it the better for me. Mark here hadn't a voice in the matter. Well, but he hadn't a voice in any other matter, had he? returned Mr. Bevan, laughing with an air that showed his understanding of Mark and Martin, too. "'Not a very powerful one, I am afraid,' said Martin, with a blush. "'But live and learn, Mr. Bevan. Nearly die and learn. We learn the quicker.' "'Now,' said their friend, "'about your plans. You mean to return home at once?' "'Oh, I think so,' returned Martin hastily, for he turned pale at the thought of any other suggestion. "'That is your opinion, too, I hope.' "'Unquestionably, for I don't know why you ever came here, "'though it's not such an unusual case, I am sorry to say, "'that we need go any farther into that. "'You don't know that the ship in which you came over "'with our friend General Fladdock is in port, of course.' "'Indeed,' said Martin, "'yes, and is advertised to sail to-morrow.' "'This was tempting news, but tantalizing, too, "'for Martin knew that his getting any employment "'on board a ship of that class was hopeless.' The money in his pocket would not pay one-fourth of the sum he had already borrowed, and if it had been enough for their passage money, he could hardly have resolved to spend it. He explained this to Mr. Bevan, and stated what their project was. "'Why, that's as wild as Eden every bit,' returned his friend. "'You must take your passage like a Christian, at least as like a Christian as a four-cabin passenger can, and owe me a few more dollars than you intend.' "'If Mark will go down to the ship and see what passengers there are, "'and finds that you can go in her without being actually suffocated, "'my advice is go. "'You and I will look about us in the meantime. "'We won't call at the Norrises unless you like, "'and we will all three dine together in the afternoon.' "'Martin had nothing to express but gratitude, and so it was arranged. "'But he went out of the room after Mark "'and advised him to take their passage in the screw, "'though they lay upon the bare deck.' which Mr. Tapley, who needed no entreaty on the subject, readily promised to do. When he and Martin met again and were alone, he was in high spirits and evidently had something to communicate in which he gloried very much. "'I've done Mr. Bevan, sir,' said Mark. "'Done Mr. Bevan?' repeated Martin. "'The cook of the screw went and got married yesterday, sir,' said Mr. Tapley. Martin looked at him for farther explanation.' "'And when I got on board, and the word was passed that it was me,' said Mark, "'the mate, he comes and asks me whether I'd engage to take this said cook's place upon the passage home. "'For you're used to it,' he says. "'You were always a-cooking for everybody on your passage out, and so I was,' said Mark. "'Although I never cooked before, I'll take my oath.' "'What did you say?' demanded Martin. "'Say?' cried Mark. "'That I'd take anything I could get.' "'If that's so,' says the mate, "'why bring a glass of rum, which they brought according. "'And my wages, sir,' said Mark in high glee, "'pays your passage, and I put the rolling pin in your berth to take it. "'It's the easy one up in the corner. "'And there we are, rule Britannia, and Britain strike home.' "'There never was such a good fellow as you are,' cried Martin, "'seizing him by the hand. "'But what do you mean by doing Mr. Bevan, Mark?' 
"'Why, don't you see?' said Mark. "'We don't tell him, you know. "'We take his money, but we don't spend it, and we don't keep it. "'What we do is write him a little note explaining this engagement, "'and roll it up and leave it at the bar to be given to him after we are gone, don't you see?' Martin's delight in this idea was not inferior to Mark's. It was all done as he proposed. They passed a cheerful evening, slept at the hotel, left the letter as arranged, and went off to the ship betimes next morning, with such light hearts as the weight of their past miseries engendered. "'Good-bye! A hundred thousand times good-bye!' said Martin to their friend. "'How shall I remember all your kindness? How shall I ever thank you?' "'If you ever become a rich man, or a powerful one,' returned his friend, "'you shall try to make your government more careful of its subjects when they roam abroad to live. "'Tell it what you know of emigration in your own case, "'and impress upon it how much suffering may be prevented with a little pains. "'Cheerily, lads, cheerily, anchor wage, ship in full sail, "'her sturdy bowsprit pointing true to England, "'America a cloud upon the sea behind them.' "'Why, Cook, what are you thinking of so steadily?' said Martin. "'Why, I was a-thinking, sir,' returned Mark, "'that if I was a painter and was called upon to paint the American eagle, "'how should I do it?' "'Paint it as like an eagle as you could, I suppose.' "'No,' said Mark, "'that wouldn't do for me, sir. "'I should want to draw it like a bat, for its short-sightedness, "'like a bantam, for its bragging.' like a magpie for its honesty, like a peacock for its vanity, like an ostrich for its putting its head in the mud and thinking nobody sees it, and like a phoenix for its power of springing from the ashes of its faults and vices and soaring up anew into the sky, said Martin. Well, Mark, let us hope so. End of chapter 34